This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with your host, Richard Dijkstra. Welcome. You're listening to the Bell Media Podcast, where we take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. In this episode, I'm speaking to journalist and author Nicholas Smiddle. Nick writes for titles such as The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine and The Washington Post. A few years back, he also wrote a gripping account of a perilous two-year journey through Afghanistan and Pakistan, venturing into areas Western journalists seldom dare enter and meeting some of the country's toughest jihadis. He's an award-winning writer, currently based in London, but he's also taught journalism at Princeton. He's here to talk about his new book, Test Gods, Tragedy and Triumph in the New Space Race. It's a story about private endeavour in space, an era that was kick-started by the launch of the X Prize in 1996, a $10 million prize to the first team to put a crewed spacecraft up into space, twice in one week. The book has rightly been described as Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, updated for the 21st century. At its heart, it's a very human story about people and families, fathers and sons, tragedy and triumph, dreamers and rule breakers, people pushing on despite it all. Welcome, Nick. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, it's really an incredible story. But before we get on to why you got involved with writing the book, perhaps you just give us a brief introduction uh, as to who actually won the X Prize and how that led on to what became Virgin Galactic and then also the focus of your book. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a great starting point because I feel like it lets us lay out a little bit of the organizational history as well as the engineering history uh, and helps us understand both sort of where Virgin Galactic started, why they are where they are, uh, and, and, and some of the very key moments uh, over the course of the past almost 20 years at this point. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, the X Prize was this prize that was uh, started in 1996, uh, and it was a $10 million prize to the first private company to put a spaceship into space twice, uh, I think within two weeks. Uh, you know, They did it within about one week, and, and with at least one astronaut on board. And then there was this asterisk where the astronaut had to uh, come back and had to not die within like the next week or something. So... Uh, a bunch of companies entered with all these crazy, wacky designs. And, and, and the company, though, that was in some ways sort of tapped to win from the get-go was Scaled Composite, which was, and you'll have to excuse me, there's, there's some hammer banging going on in the background here as uh, uh, our neighbors have decided that this would be the week to begin their massive uh, uh, overhaul of their home. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, so Scaled Composites was sort of was, was, was tapped to be the winner. And they were this, this boutique aviation firm in Mojave, California. And the reason why they were considered the, the, the forerunner was because they, had, they were run by this revolutionary aerospace designer, a guy named Burt Rattan. And, and Burt Rattan's claim to fame was that he built uh, and tested uh, a new prototype every year. Uh, Burt Rattan has more uh, aircraft hanging in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. than any other aerospace designer. He, he is a true, true visionary. He's a genius. And so Bert Rattan was, he built airplanes. This was his thing. And, and he thought, okay, well, I'm going to try and essentially make an airplane that can, that, that can stuff a rocket in the back and see if this thing can get to space. And he, and he designed it 
in line with the X planes uh, of of the of the fifties and sixties in the U.S. Uh, these um, the X one, the X fifteen, the X one being the first aircraft that broke the sound barrier. The X fifteen uh, being this this rocket plane that was you know that NASA was going to use to get to space. Uh, before the Mercury program came in and and sort of supplanted the X-15 project. And the way that Burt Rutan and Scaled Composites, they designed, they designed this mothership. And the mothership would tow the spaceship that they called Spaceship One up to an altitude of about 45,000 feet, drop the spaceship, uh, at which point the, the pilot would light the rocket, fly horizontally for a few seconds and then enter in this very steep near vertical ascent uh, up to the heavens and burn the rocket motor for about 60 seconds would get them uh, to 328,000 feet about uh, 100 kilometers above sea level. And in 2004, in late September and early October 2004, they completed these two flights and and won the X Prize. And I mean, this was just, it, it's hard to overestimate how big of a moment this is for the commercial space industry and just for, for, for space exploration and space travel. I mean, this is the first time a private company had built a vehicle, a spaceship. And Richard Branson uh, had this ongoing relationship with Burt Rutan, partially because Branson was... You know, Branson is an explorer. Branson was was he was into hot air balloon races and, and building aircraft that could fly around the world without refueling and things like that. And so he he knew Bert Rutan and and he began he took an interest in the Spaceship One project. And after Spaceship One completed its first flight, Branson said, uh, "Hey, can I give you guys a couple million dollars and slap a Virgin decal on the back of that spaceship? And if you can make it to space again and prove the concept." I would like to make that uh, use your design as the the basis for uh, my fledgling or at, at that point just aspirational space tourism company, which became Virgin Galactic. And so that is where the idea and the 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 kernel of the engineering design began, which is that when they completed that flight, that second flight, that is, I think maybe that day or the next day, Richard Branson announced they were going to create Virgin Galactic, and and that uh, so that was in September of or October of 2004, and they've been kind of having a go at trying to get it off the ground and, and really show that they could build a repeatable version of that, a larger version that was also safe to do it multiple times, dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, whereas Scaled Composites, they flew these two flights and said, okay, we're done. <laughs> you know, we've, 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 we've sort of pushed it as much as we're going to push it. So that's, that's, that's the origin. Okay, excellent. Yeah, well, I can uh, actually vouch personally for the fact that there was also this great buzz at that time because I myself had a, an interest in space tourism. Uh, I was involved with this and still am involved with a specialist travel company, and we thought we'd have a just look at what was happening. So in May 2006, I actually attended a space conference in Los Angeles uh, where all these various companies were talking about their plans. So, you know, Virgin Galactic was there. Elon Musk was a speaker, X-Core, SpaceX. Uh, oh, wow. Buzz, you know, Buzz Aldrin was a key player there. We flew in from London uh, and straight into the conference and didn't realize we had to then attend a dinner. Uh, and that dinner at night was actually uh, a kind of an amazing time because, you know, we were sitting beside people who had actually bought tickets. Oh, wow. And things. But also, the, it started off with... the the guy turning around and saying, so just to see who's in the room tonight, you know, stand up all of those who've got an interest in space. So we all stood up mm. and they said, remain standing, those people that have orbited the earth. But there was seven, eight people still standing. 
And then he said, remain standing all those people that have orbited the moon. And then remain standing all those people that have walked in the moon. Hmm. And you ended up with two people. And, you know, and you suddenly realize that actually, so of all of the people that are interested in space at that time are kind of in the room. Mm. So there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of buzz. Everybody seemed to think that it was just a matter of time. It was three, four, five years before you could get into uh, the full commercial flights. And it was just a race as to which of the various companies was actually going to be first. Oh, incredible story. Wow, that's an amazing, that sounds like an amazing evening. I also went to an event that was in October of that year as well, which was at Las Cruces, which was the XPRIZE kind of celebrating the two-year anniversary. There was a lot of rocket testing and all that kind of stuff. So the, the, the hype I can understand and also the enthusiasm and the real confidence of it all. As I say, that was in 2005, 2006. Mm. So 15 years later, it clearly didn't work out quite like that, which kind of takes us on to 2014, would it be? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, so, you know, it's funny. So to say that it didn't quite work out, I mean, in, in some ways, I feel like, I mean, I, I don't know what Elon Musk was promising in, in 2005, 2006, but um, I would I would have to think that if someone would have told you in 2005 that NASA will no longer be flying the rockets that, that transport um, American astronauts to the International Space Station, but Elon Musk will be doing that, I think people would probably have thought you were absolutely crazy. But... The seemingly more attainable pursuit at that time, which was, you know, suborbital space tourism, like, let's just do what scaled composites did and Bert Rutan did, and let's just sort of go to the cusp of space and come back. And let's do that, though, you know, once a month or once a week or, you know, whatever that let's pick up the frequency. I suspect that if you would have told someone that that was, like you said, a, a few years off, they would have certainly thought it was possible and and that we would still be where we are, which is that not a single quote unquote sort of suborbital space tours has um, made that journey would, would, yeah, would be really surprising. So, so you, you mentioned 2014, which is, which is really a big, a big turning point for, for Virgin Galactic and, and as well for, for my interest in this story, you know, not to be overly dramatic about this, but yeah, kind of for my for my life in some ways it was a, it was a turning point for me as a father as a reporter as a you know in, in numerous ways and and what that turning point is is um halloween of 2014 when virgin galactic is 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 planning on that morning of of the 31st of october to fly its fourth rocket powered flight and this one was aiming for uh about 38 seconds of rocket burn so about two-thirds of the of the the estimated time to get them to space and they were thought they would get up to about 180,000 feet above sea level and there were there were hiccups along the way but but more or less the morning kind of went as planned and they uh they 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 dropped the rocket uh the the spaceship now now the now the mothership is called white knight 2 it was a bigger version of the white knight that carried spaceship one aloft in 2004 so now in 2014 you've got white knight 2 which is this big you know sort of albatrossian wingspan has this big albatrossian wingspan and it carries spaceship two up to altitude to, to the drop altitude and and it's worth stopping here and pausing for a second and, and explaining a little bit about the the engineering um, idiosyncrasy that Bert Rattan introduced and incorporated into Spaceship One and then later into Spaceship Two, which is that they, they were always concerned not really so much about getting up into space, but about how to get down without burning up because the because the, the aerodynamic forces on the vehicle would be so extreme as you were coming down, breaking back through the atmosphere. And so Bert Rattan introduced this thing called the feather, which essentially 
the t- it allowed the tail booms to rotate up and 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 kind of turned the vehicle. I mean, if you kind of close your eyes and you imagine an airplane for a second, and imagine what an airplane would look like if it was if it was <laughs> folded into a taco shell. And and that's what Spaceship Two did. And by doing that, it could float down. It could it could it, the, it would create a certain amount of drag to let it sort of float down, control its reentry attitude and angle, and make a careful and controlled reentry. So that feather, uh, they knew that they had to keep that feather locked. Um, they 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 couldn't. The feather was there was a, there was a locking mechanism and there was an unlocking mechanism. And then once it was unlocked, the pilot would lift the feather up. And they needed they knew they needed to keep it locked until about one point four Mach, because otherwise it would the the aerodynamic forces would push the tail up and 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 you know that was kind of I mean it would be like you know pulling the emergency brake up on your car as you're on the highway, right? And so on this particular morning, they dropped the spaceship and uh, light the motor and the motor burns for just a few seconds when the co-pilot made this, to this point, sort of, you know, an, an unanswerable mistake in which he announced, he said, unlocking, and he just sort of skipped a page in the hymnal. I think he thought he was somewhere in the flight he wasn't he kind of had this checklist in his mind and he just sort of skipped an item in the checklist and he unlocked the feather and the aerodynamic forces did what everyone knew they would do and it pushed the feather up and it shredded the vehicle apart in midair and the vehicle crashed and one of the test pilots died the test the co-pilot who um uh, unlocked the feather and the other test pilot survived and i and i remembered that morning seeing this alert on my phone that virgin galactic's uh, spaceship had crashed and there was a moment for me, like there was the there was the recognition of the tragedy of it, and there was a sort of a second moment, which in which I just kind of wanted to stop. You know, like if you were, you know, if you're a if you're sort of before a studio audience, and it's like, wait a second, stop, everyone, wait a second. There's a British billionaire funding a rocket, private rocket company in the California desert that's testing rockets that are flown by real test pilots and not sort of automated, programmed by engineers. It sounded so immediately retro and and you know i kind of i thought like who's who i thought we were done doing this kind of stuff i thought this was like you know we i thought that this was done with the x-planes in the in the 60s and and that that's what really sparked my interest and 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 motivated me to get out to california uh initially for a long new yorker piece and then which turned into this book right now uh you obviously also didn't come uh from this totally cold either with your interest in things like uh uh the X-15 and planes like that, because I think you are actually, your family, there's a, a background in aviation. Is that not right? Yes. My, my father is a um, kind of legendary inside of the Marine Corps aviation community, a legendary fighter pilot. Um, he uh, he had flown opening night, first night of the, the first Gulf War and had flown combat missions in Bosnia and, and at the time, actually, uh, was the deputy commandant for aviation, a three-star general in charge of all uh, helicopters and airplanes in the Marine Corps. So um, he had he had not only kind of established his bona fides as a as a as a kind of fighter jock and the Top Gun graduate and all that in his younger days, but then was kind of you know was the was the was the, was the guy in charge of all the planes at that point, and, and took pride though not in the fact that he was the boss, but that he was the boss and still flying single seater fighter jets at his age and competing with guys that were, you know, in some cases, like literally half his age. And that, that's, that's, that was kind of his psyche. Right. So when I, so when I get out to California the first time and I 
meet the test pilot who would soon become Virgin Galactic's lead test pilot. At that point, he was still at Scaled Composites as, as one of their test pilots, this guy named Mark Stuckey. He was, yeah, I'd never met Mark Stuckey before, but he was sort of immediately familiar to me. I, I, I knew the type, right? I, I, I'd, yeah. There was just something about the fabric of, of who he was that uh, we, we hit it off. And, 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 and so Mark Stuckey became my window into this world. And, and in some ways he was, you know, I could sort of, I could, I could write about my father without writing about my father by writing about Stuckey and, and yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, I think also uh, when you walked in, there was a bit of a recognition from his side as well of this is a type I recognize as well. Is yeah. that not right? Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, he 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 told me that he had recently, yeah, he'd recently seen my dad on a 60 Minutes uh, special about the F-35. You know, he said to me something like, you know, that, that I was I was that I was familiar and that I reminded him of someone and that someone was 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 his flight instructor. I mean, if you the community of of, of fighter pilots uh, is, is really, really close and really small. And, and just, you know, and so my dad exactly had been a flight instructor in the training squadron in Yuma, Arizona in the early eighties when, when uh, Stucky passed through there. And so they had had this, uh, they had had this overlap and, um, and, and you're right. I, th- I think, and I, I, I know that having, having talked to, to Stucky about this a bit that, you know, we talked later, we talked, after the magazine piece, after the 16,000 word magazine piece that I spent four years working on came out, but before the, before I finished the book, you know, he said like, why do you think, and he, ha- he was sort of asking himself aloud, but also asking me genuinely, he said, why do you think I've cooperated to the extent that I have? And I, you know, we can, we can get into that in a second, but I was deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained in his life. Um, you know, he was sharing private emails and correspondences with, with friends and family and, um, ex-wives and estranged children. And, and, um, and just, he, he let me into his home and, and into his world in a way that I exceeded any expectation that I could have had going in. And he asked sort of, why did I let you, why, why do you think I let you in? And I said, you know, I think that you, Mark Stuckey know that you've lived this extraordinary life chasing this astronaut dream for the past 40 years, uh, you know, through all of the traditional channels and in the military. And now with Virgin Galactic, with Scaled Composites and with Virgin Galactic, and, you know, he had flown the first three rocket powered flights successfully and did not fly the fourth in which his best friend committed this, uh, you know, unforgivable mistake and, and was killed. And, and now he was preparing to fly the fifth. And, you know, it was like, um, I said, and I think that when you met me, you met someone uh, whose professional credentials you trusted and, and kind of who came from a background that you implicitly thought was the right background to help tell your story as well. And I thought, yeah, I thought it was really, and he, he agreed. And I, and I cannot, you know, I, it was one of like the really interesting moments for me uh, and kind of interesting revelations in this project, which is just that we as journalists so often think that we're the ones who sort of do all the picking, right? And and forget that oftentimes um, the subjects that we write about are also screening us and deciding whether they want to cooperate with us. And so it was, it was you know, it was, it was ultimately kind of this really special uh, match. So I think one of the, the key issues from, from my point of view with the, with the book is the fact that clearly there does seem to be this whole kind of dynamic of father-son relationships. I mean, clearly that he was aware of you as the son of his instructor, but also this three-star general, you know, 
that one of the top aces in uh, the U.S. Air Force. Uh, there's your relationship with your own children, with him, uh, your father, uh, but also there's Mark Stuck himself, who's actually going through quite a relationship issue with his own son. They got divorced at one point. The family split up. The son clearly uh, was very affected by that. And there's this kind of gradual coming back together again within the book. And I think it's all these kind of personal relationships that fit together. But I also think that it's also one of the things which the personal relationship within the books are is so important because also I think it links into the whole issue by Richard Branson has got involved in all of this as well because it's the personalities. It's, 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 it's the fact that these planes are flown, which is actually so important to him as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm so glad you know you hit you hit upon that for for various reasons, which is that this never felt to me like a space book, right? It never. Um, people would ask me when I was when I told them I was working on the project, they'd say, "Oh, I didn't know you were interested in space." And I said, I, I, "I'm not really interested in space. It sort of is almost incidental that all of this is happening uh, with a space company. It certainly adds to the." It raises the stakes, but space in some ways was always kind of a metaphor for me. It was always about uh, people trying to 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 push the literally to push the envelope to to push on into these uncomfortable places in life to try and learn something more about themselves or about um, you know what, what it is that kind of we're here for and 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 that was always for me um, what grounded the book and and I remember. When I was having a conversation with with Mark Stuckey at one point, and he mentioned to me this this very, um, and th- at this point it was it was not a a, a repaired relationship, but the, but his estranged relationship and, and really difficult relationship with his son. And when he told me about that, and and you know how the day of the crash, you know he and his son weren't talking besides a very occasional messages over Facebook messenger and his son had reached out to him and said, you know, how's it going? I hope, you know, I was really something about like, I was really tripping out when I thought you might've been killed, but you weren't. And I'm glad, you know, Stucky had been out quite literally kind of picking up pieces of his best friend in the desert all that day. And he came back and he, you know, he told me later, he said like, I just, I had, so I, I, it was an overreaction, but here's my son coming back to me in some ways after you know, so long and trying to establish some contact. And I just pushed him away. And I mean, Sucky said something like, you know, oh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the son doesn't talk to dad for multiple years. And then son thinks that dad has just died and suddenly wants to be friends again. And it was just like, oh man, what a, <laughs> you know, and it's like one of those things where as, as a father, you know, I kind of go back sometimes. I go, I, on a daily basis, I go back and I replay things that I've said to my kids or I'm like, oh man, what was I thinking? You know, I, you just try every day is a chance to sort of to do that better. So that was so the book was always for me about about those those human relationships and 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 you're totally right I, that human element the human factor was is 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 inherently what has attracted and and drawn Richard Branson to this project for all these years um he he is Richard Branson is that sort of you know swashbuckling barnstormer you know with the scarf flapping in the breeze in the back seat of a of, of a biplane you know that's 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 the persona he's created and that is the aura that these pilots embody 
And so if you told me tomorrow, if Richard Branson was given the choice tomorrow, uh, that I can develop for you a space tourism company that will actually be more potentially more reliable and more efficient and, um, you know, will look more like SpaceX, but will not feature pilots. I don't know which option Richard Branson takes because he's he's that's not him. Right. He's not the sort of the the algorithmic genius who's trying to sort of work his way through life's problems by programming the bugs out. He's the kind of guy yeah. who wants to work his way through life's problems by by experiencing them and by sort of feeling and 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 enduring the hardships. And and that's you know that was always for me what what the story was about. Yeah. I mean the other issue which comes in is that we're talking about it as though the book was always inevitable, but presumably actually originally you were commissioned to write an article. But again, probably that was something that your editor at the time was somewhat skeptical about you being able to do because after all, you know, you were trying to come into a company that had actually had a major setback, a major tragedy. And it, in a way, it seems rather odd that although I can see the Mark Stuckey being interested in perhaps talking to you, the fact that Virgin were so open as well, uh, that in some respects is quite a surprise. Uh, but again, is, is, there, is there a reason why that happened, do you think? It was, it was again, personalities, right? It was, it was really a, a, it was an instance of, of all the stars aligning uh, in the aftermath of of this this horrible tragedy and and in the aftermath of this horrible tragedy, I mean, so for me, as a magazine writer, I'm always looking. I'm always trying to think. You know, it's it, it's oftentimes a single scene uh, that I'll think that could be a magazine piece. That could be a ten thousand word magazine piece that I spent four months on. And and you know whether it's a whether it's the you know an undercover. Uh, sting operation to 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 nab a Russian arms dealer, or whether it's you know a, a, a rocket ship crashing in the desert. It's like okay, well, I could take that single scene and I could really sort of report that out. I could do you know kind of a TikTok account of that. You know, I did this two months after the raid that killed Osama bin Laden, the Navy SEAL raid. You know, I I took that event and and slowed the time down and and did this minute by minute sort of blow by blow account inside the compound. And so that was what I, that's, that's the kind of reporting that I like to do. And when I, when I went to the company and told them that I wanted to embed with the company for, I said, I wanted to essentially do what Buzz Bissinger had done in the, in, in Friday night lights in which he went and embedded with a high school football team for a season. I said, I want to do that with your rocket company. And, and I want to stay with your, this, the season for me, this defined amount of time is from now in the immediate aftermath of this horrible crash until the time you rebuild a new build a new spaceship and 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 refly the flight that you were planning to fly on that tragic morning and so we had a lot of discussions about that and and uh, fortunately the woman who was uh running the communications department at the time was a huge fan of friday night lights and she thought that she said look you know we have such amazing people and stories out here in the desert and I think, you know, that's the kind of story that I want to tell. We, we Virgin Galactic, uh, she said, has been telling the kind of glamour, uh, celebrity-driven version of the story for the past few years as we've been, you know, moving towards or sort of hopefully moving towards uh, uh, beginning commercial operations. But that, she said, isn't the story right now. The story right now is about sacrifice and, and you know, people sort of holding on to these dreams in spite of, in spite of these, these you know, terrible 
uh, events. And so I also had one of the test pilots uh, was a former uh, Marine. He was my dad's wingman on the first night of the Gulf War. And he had actually, uh, he had led the search and rescue mission when my dad had to eject from an F-18 that crashed into a mountainside in Japan uh, in the late 80s. And, and this guy, this test pilot's wife had babysat for my brother and I, when we were kids. So we had this really you know, long, long, long history, but, but it was a history. I mean, I hadn't talked to the guy in 30 years. And so he, he, uh, CJ Sturkow went to the president, the then vice president, now president of the company and said, look, you know, I think Nick's the kind of reporter we, we would potentially want to let in. Um, I explained the way that the New Yorker sort of did its fact checking. And he said, but, uh, you know, I can't, I can't say anything really about what he is as a reporter, but he, he comes from sort of good stock. And so, you know, there were a couple of ways that I was trying to, 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 to help build my case. And, and then I just went into the company and I explained to them how I worked. I said, you know, this is the way the fact checking works. I, this is, I would record everything. I'm curious. I want to know, I want, I'm going to ask the same question a million times to make sure I understand. I'm going to then go back to you before we go to print and make sure that I understand. I'm going to, you know, the fact checker is going to go back to you. And I think that all of those sort of steps of, of quality control, if you will, reassured them. And, um, and, and look, you know, when the book was going to print, when the magazine was going to print, and then when the book was going to print too, I saw a lot of things. I learned a lot of things. I developed relationships outside of the normal channels in which I was uh, provided with documents and information and stories that, you know, defied their attempt to kind of keep me uh, on a certain narrative, but there was no ground for them to stand on to object to anything on for the sake of accuracy. I mean, they would say, Oh my God, I'm not sure. Like we want you to say that. And I said, well, that's, that's not, you know, that's, that's not, that's not up for discussion. It's, it's, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's not accurate, tell me, uh, but, but you know, it's true and it's actually very germane to the overall story. So yeah, I mean, those, uh, I, I don't know what they would, I don't know if they're going to allow another reporter embedded reporter in anytime soon. Um, but I feel very fortunate to have, uh, to have spent those four years inside the company for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I say, it's someone obviously coming at it from being an interested reader of this, these type of things anyway, Clearly, I was perhaps going to always be more interested, but I think actually the story that you tell is actually something that they would be very pleased about, really. I mean, I can understand that they've also got this issue that they're trying to sell tickets and all this kind of stuff for an experience and anything that there is this slight dichotomy between everybody wants it to be safe, but everybody wants it to be dangerous as well. <laughs> I think. So, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, they, they want to be part of the, the glamour safely. Right, right. Well, and they want, and, and, and when, when people ask why they aren't flying, you know, five tourist flights a, a month, uh, and, and, you know, um, clearing off their, their, their 600 person role of, of customers, you know, the, the old maxim of, of space travel that, you know, space is hard, they, they, that, that is always there. Uh, and so the difficulty of the undertaking has to be available for the sake of, of uh, explaining why they're there. But the fact that sort of, you know, no one ever wants to talk about a, a test pilot dying or the three engineers who were killed in a, in a propulsion accident in 2007. And those are those I just always thought that those were as important, you know, that the, the low points. I, I said to them at one point, they I was in this meeting on the eve of their first captive carry flight in which they were just going to sort of take the new spaceship up into the air. The mothership was going to take the new spaceship up and just fly around for a few hours. And I was sitting in this meeting and they were having a very, very candid discussion about whether they should even be having this meeting. And the reason was that there was some paperwork that wasn't ready. And uh, one of the, the, the vice president of safety 
uh, said it was a meeting of like eight people, like the vice, you know, the president, the vice president, the lead test pilot, um, you know, essentially the top eight people in the company. And uh, the vice president of safety, the former Air Force test pilot said, we are a failure to be having this conversation right now. He said, it's just, it's just, in, you know, it's just indicative of like that. We're, this is just, you know, it was amateur hour. And one of the the president of the manufacturing subsidiary of Virgin Galactic called the Spaceship Company, he, he looked over his shoulder and he said, I don't feel comfortable having Nick in the room, having this discussion. And it was clearly an invitation to leave. And I said, without answering his, without <laughs> acknowledging his question, I said, well, I just want to thank you all for your trust and your confidence in me. And these are the moments, these, these moments of, of tri- these trials and tribulations along the way are going to make the triumph that much sweeter, hopefully, uh, at, at the end. And, uh, and I said, you know, if we don't have these moments of, of teeth gnashing and, and really sort of hard decision making, if I'm not witnessing those, then the whole thing sort of feels empty in the end. And, um, and I just said, you know, so thank you again. And uh, I went back to taking notes and the meeting resumed. And I think that everyone was like, wow, I certainly you know, you were, <laughs> that was, it was a very open invitation. It was, it was, he could, he could have said nothing short of Nick, get out of here. Uh, and somehow yeah. or another you stuck around. And so, um, you know, I think that, that, that I kind of kept repeating that to them, that, that for it to have that emotional weight, you know, it was important. I thought for me to be able to, to, to describe and, and, and really kind of provide an authoritative account of, of their, um, difficulties along the way. Yeah, and the, and the process and the care that's taken in all of these things, which I think really does come through. I mean, one of the things which is interesting in all this, and it, it actually also goes back to uh, that time I was at these conferences in 2006, that there was actually a really interesting kind of dynamic, I think, uh, in a kind of culture clashes between the entrepreneurial space people, the ex-NASA guys, the military test pilots, and Virgin, that are all kind of mixed together in the the project, really. It's a kind of very, very interesting set of dynamics. But the other thing that you keep coming across when you talk about all these people is, again, how there was so much disappointment in what had happened to NASA that it seemed to, you know, in the 60s, it was the go-to organization everybody wanted to be part of. And gradually, it seemed to slow down and become more and more bureaucratic and you get that there's a whole kind of frustration with that big civil service bureaucracy that nasa became you you talk about the themes like that right you talk about this 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 frustration with nasa's failure to inspire i mean that nasa was the one that was doing all of the stuff that made people's jaws drop and and made people just freaking proud to be americans or humans i mean it was just incredible to watch you know and then they went into this period of, of you know, stasis. And, and and that's not to say, I mean, I just recently um, uh, wrote a short piece for The New Yorker about um, the rover uh, on, on the surface of Mars. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that is phenomenally cool stuff, right? But the question is, like, it, what Bert Rutan often said about NASA was that they have, they have failed to inspire, They're, that their goal in some ways, their, their, their purpose in some ways was to, um, to fill the next generation with wide eyes and a, a want to learn and, and, and a want to explore. And, and that was where he felt like NASA had failed. And, and part of, I think thematically what I took from the process of, of writing and reporting this book uh, was how all of us as in some ways, all of us as fathers, like that is our 
purpose is to 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 inspire our our children to to you know approach the world with with curiosity and a uh you know a, a wanderlust and how all of us try and do that differently uh and how to what extent you know our parents have done that for us so yes you know you kind of have all of these subcultures at the company you've got you know you have virgin mojave almost versus versus you know against kind of virgin london you know london being the very you know london virgin london is kind of setting the marketing tone and virgin mojave is saying you got to be kidding me guys like we're not even close to flying the space and you know richard branson's on tv saying you know it'll be six months and then you have the the scaled composites, these kind of, I mean, these, these are like, yeah, as somebody said, these are desert rats. These are, these are, these are guys that are building model cars that are graduated to model airplanes. And then all suddenly are building, you know, model spaceships and they don't understand like the cultural clash between them and the engineers that Virgin was initially hiring just, just couldn't have been more stark. So, so I thought those were always, those were always sort of fascinating from a, from an organizational, from kind of a Harvard Business Review case study of, of how this organization sort of function or its its dysfunction, but but the more universal theme of of that inspiration was was really kind of I think what 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 drove me forward and what kept my interest in this book uh, and in the process of writing the book um, over the course of the you know seven years that I was working on it. Well, actually, I think that's a fantastic place to stop. Thank you, Nick, so much for being my guest on Books and Stories. Test Gods is out now. It's published by Hutchinson. It's a fascinating subject. Well, it's a fascinating series of subjects, really. A great read. Most definitely not just for space geeks. It's a very human story and one that's being played out as we speak. So thanks for listening. The studio production was by Perrin Sledge. I'm Richard Dijkstra. There are lots of interesting podcasts in Bell Books and Stories series, whether it's Kay talking to Philippa Donovan about how books get picked up for film and TV, or my conversation recently with John Preston about another media mogul, Robert Maxwell, in his book Fall. Hope you have time to listen to that, and also please join me next time when we're going to be exploring rewilding. So bye for now. Thank you. Thank you.